following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And first we had Strange, Strange People by Kev Carmody. And then we just were listening to Song of the Times. It's a song from the 1840s by Chumpa Wamba. And both those are quite relevant with all the challenges that we're going through in our communities today and which will be addressed by the candidate we have in studio with us, Kim Rubenstein and Kim is part of our federal election series and she is a law professor, uh, author, human rights advocate, mum and proud Canberran who is running as an independent for the Senate. You also may recognise Kim from her previous successful appearances on Q&A, Insiders, Sky News and several TED Talks lending her extensive experience as a legal expert and human rights defender to the conversations uh, expertise she's bringing to her campaign to ensure the interests of Canberrans are represented in Parliament. So welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming out on this rainy morning. It is indeed, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it, uh, it provided a bit, uh, a bit of a challenge, so some lovely extra music for your listeners, but yes. it's really great to be here. No, that's wonderful to have you here. So um, as we started with all of our guest candidates, it's a chance for our listeners to get to know you as a person wonderful. and not just as a politician. Yes. And I was having a read through some of your background and I had to sit down. I was so impressed. Oh, that's lovely. Um, Thank you. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of background about Kim and yes. Kim in Canberra yes. and uh, why you're choosing to run in this election. And I think that distinction you introduced, Zena, of getting to know me, Kim, as a person as opposed to a politician mm. is to remind everyone, of course, that I haven't done this before. That, <laughs> But part of what is motivating me to do this is to change our conception of politicians. And by that I mean of bringing the authenticity into Parliament and into representation. So I'm really grounding my campaign in my 25 years of work for the community outside of Parliament. And the last few years have really, really impressed upon me how important it is for those voices to be inside Mm -hmm. Parliament Mm -hmm. and that there's this moment that I couldn't let by, and I, I'm sure in our discussion we'll come to that, but, you know, why now? Those sorts of things are really significant for me, but in essence getting to know me as a person will be also what you get to know me as a politician because mm. I really want to stay true mm. to my values and principles that have driven me for the last 25 years and bring that into our parliament and then in hoping to do mm. that to change people's conceptions mm. of politicians mm. and actually change and diversify who we have in parliament. Mm. So we get back to the ideal of what politics was about, which is to elect leaders who truly represented us yes. and who were going to make decisions for the greater good. Yes, And exactly. we've come, we've slipped a long way from that, unfortunately. Look, yes, I think, you know, uh, uh, just even with all of the attention this morning about the internal Liberal Party machinations and the High Court mm-hmm. hearing this afternoon, a special leave application, really impresses on us how the party mm-hmm. system has really decayed, I think. You know, I I understand and in our sort of political evolution as a a nation that parties have been significant, but I think we've got to the point where the parties are really out of Mm. touch with what they're set up to do, which is what you just said Mm. about enabling people to find a framework through to being representatives. But what's happened is the parties have taken hold of the way that is done in what is now a very unhealthy way. And there's a whole lot of gender analysis we could give Mm -hmm. too in terms of those structures 
basically mm. being set up by white men to to manage power. And white men of means too. And yeah. white men of means mm. indeed. Yeah. You know, so that's right. Socioeconomic mm. aspects to it you know, uh, have been significant. And we, we know that if you have the same voices in a decision-making pot, then you're not going to think outside the box. Mm. And more importantly, you're not going to take into account the needs of the others who are not there as well. So, yes, so, the, you know, that true... A notion of democracy is about representation mm. and we're not getting that and I think that's part of certainly why mm. um, a range of reasons why I've put my hand up as an independent but you can look around the country. I mean I put my hand mm. up last August mm. being inspired by um, uh, the Indi campaign um, in, in particular mm. having having known Cathy McGowan but meeting Helen Haynes and seeing as I said earlier that I could stay true to myself. They are really standing up as independents bringing in a fresh voice and the community's voice and there's this opportunity for people to say, well, that is doable in our political system and ha- here is a moment to do it and then that will lead to um, really um, revitalising our democracy in a number of ways. Yeah. And there's reckon, transparency too, Scotty. Yeah, yeah so you absolutely. wanted to talk about that. I reckon that. Uh, more people should know about the Indi sort of uh, yes, method. Experience. Can you just explain a little bit about what mm-hmm. went yeah, on there? Yeah, so Cathy McGowan and a whole group of, of uh, residents in Indi three elections ago, because she won two elections in her own right, and then Helen Haynes was her successor. So they've had three successive mm-hmm. successes. So going back to before that success, their representative um, was not necessarily uh, listening to, uh, let alone engaging with the community. And so a group of them set up um, this kitchen table model (laughs) where they were meeting with individuals from around the electorate um, for quite a period, sort of getting um, in touch with those um, residents, finding out what their needs were, collating that and then having a go at running um, separately. And they also stayed high in their campaign and by which I mean, and this is something really important for me, it's about the way we change politics. It's not about attacking the other person. It's actually about saying what are the needs of this community and how best to represent those needs. And um, so they did that over um, a significant period, so much so that they were able to, um, you know, uh, move the swing of a vote in such significant way and and in our sort of impact that we've had three elections where um, they've been re-elected. Now Helen is up for re-election again and the margin is small. I mean mm. we we think of that support but um, but it's you know I, I you know I believe that uh, she'll be doing a great campaign but mm. she, they should they both should know how much it's inspired others to recognize that we need to get back to that sort of grassroots grounded approach to what it is that Parliament is meant to be doing, which is representing all of us, not just swinging seats that are going to be key for the next election. Well, that's it. I mean, how... how I mean, yeah. it would be quite difficult and quite a big process to actually know what the community thinks. Yes, indeed, and yes. And that's what they've done there, which I think is the main difference. Yes. political parties basically have their own agenda. Yes. Well, they have, I guess, their branch meetings, but even within those contexts, the numbers of members of parties has dropped over the years. And actually what has been really affirming and remarkable for my experience is that um, one of the things about Helen and, and the lower house campaigns is that they're already on an equal footing with the other candidates in the sense of the ballot paper. So they're all on the same ballot paper and, you know, the draw, there's literally the lottery of what order they appear, but otherwise they're all on the same ballot paper. The difference in the Senate is that 
we have above the line and below the line voting. So whilst there have been independents in the past in Canberra who have run, they've all been below the line and not easily identifiable above the line. So when I started to think about this basically a year or so, a year ago, um, I knew that to have a real chance I needed to be above the line on the, on the ballot paper because 80% of Canberrans actually vote above the line. So they're choosing to vote for parties as opposed to individuals. So that's when I set up the Kim for Canberra party. Um, and the first, when I actually announced the numbers that you needed to form a party were 500. And quite a few um, well-experienced um, advisors said to me, that'll take a long time to get 500 members because people generally don't like joining political parties. Well, I got those 500 members within a week, which was, you know, through people my former students, my colleagues, my friends and family around the country who knew what I've been doing for the last 25 years and said, yes, it would be fantastic if Kim is in Parliament. And then at the end of that week, and I'd sort of foreshadowed this in my press release, the Parliament had before it legislation to increase the minimum number of members from 500 to 1,500. And just as I got my 500 members, they passed that legislation. But I think on That's the rather fa- convenient for them, isn't it? Was it? Rather, it was indeed rather convenient. And, you know, there is a question mark as to how, how um, healthy it is to make it more difficult for others to enter the race. But maybe with a population of the size of Australia, having 1,500 members to, join, to, make, to make a party is not necessarily disproportionate. So, but the timing, I think, worked out well because I just got my 500 members. So I was able to go back to them and say, well, if each of you can find three other members, we're there. And basically in another four weeks, I think it was, I had those 1,500 members and indeed you effectively needed 1,650 to submit the paperwork to the Australian Electoral Commission. And now I think I've got close to 2,000 members. Um, and that in, in itself was only just the very first step because then the Australian Electoral Commission has to follow through quite an arduous process of checking those individuals, um, that they're on the electoral roll, checking that they really did join up and I just didn't find 1,650 <laughs> names. Bot. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So that was all done and on the 18th of January um, the party was registered. So I'm definitely going to be above the line so people can easily find me if they're part of that 80% in putting one for for Canberra. That's brilliant. And I actually did take a look at some of your social media from its initiation and yes. I saw what fabulous networking yes. you were doing. You yes. know, the, that, that to me was... That, as someone called it um, Kim's grassroots campaign yes, you know, yeah. in, a, in a very positive way yes. saying that grassroots was connecting you to the people yes. and that's where I think the big parties the major parties um, and you know those running who are maybe a little bit on the arrogant side don't yes. realise that if you don't make that connection to another human being yeah. humans vote for yes. humans right? yes we yeah. don't just vote for policies. Indeed, exactly. And in fact, the other, just to add into that storytelling, which is quite interesting, um, I'd um, you know provided the exclusive story to um, the Canberra Times two days before lockdown. And the aim, I think, had been for it to be, um, you know, a front page story um, a couple of days later. Or, you know, that was certainly my hope. And I think Karen, Karen would have been advocating for it because it was a big news story. And then the lockdown occurred on the Friday. And, of course, that became a very huge story for Canberra. But it still ran as a page three story, which is pretty remarkable given there was, you know, it was the first time we were going into lockdown. But then, um, you know, the idea of connecting to people 
being in lockdown, I came up with this idea that as people joined the party, I invited them, we set up a Calendly, and every night I had two slots of people being able to come and meet me on Zoom. So there was a 7 to 8 slot and an 8.30 to 9.30 slot. And what was fabulous was people invited then up to 20 people to come and meet with me. And over the next few months, I just met people on Zoom. And I just found it the most energizing experience you know even on zoom having a group of people talking about you know asking them what is important for you you know what was it that motivated the person who invited them to join the party and and just that discussion right from the start was that community it was they were my sort of kitchen table meetings in effect in in zoom in zoom time and um hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people i've spoken to before the lockdown ended, which also um, helped. We had, I've got someone who's doing a PhD in deliberative democracy who's volunteered and we got everyone's permission and we took notes from those meetings so they were effectively focus (coughs) groups. And so we've got this really rich range of data um, which, you know, shares with us um, significant, you know, issues for Canberrans, which no doubt we'll come back to Mm -hmm. too. So it's been a really energising sort of affirmation of active citizenship, people responding to the desire to have someone like me doing this. Mm. And what I also noticed is, apart from your love of chai, is yes. you have probably had the most face-to-face cafe, coffee house meetings <laughs> yes. um, with your potential voters. Yes. And it's, you know, I was scrolling back through going, oh, my goodness, there's another one, there's another one. Yeah. Another one. But I love that and yeah. I, I think that really works. Well, about authenticity, mm. I haven't had a, a drink of coffee since 1991. Mm. I say that with a sad voice because it just doesn't cooperate with my body. I love the smell of coffee um, and probably not particularly socially acceptable, but when my husband has a coffee, I love to have a little bit of a smell. But I love chai tea and real chai tea. So I thought, well, don't say come and have a coffee with Kim because I'm having chai. Of course, people can have whatever they want when they're having a cup of uh, tea or otherwise with me. But it was just a way of thinking through how can people... Um, beyond those Zoom meetings and beyond public meetings, which sometimes mm-hmm. people feel constrained by, or even people who can't fit into those timeframes. So mm-hmm. you'll have noticed, mm-hmm. Zena, that I've changed the time yeah. so that people's different needs. I did notice comments from people saying, look, I'm at work during the day. Yes. I really want to come along. Yes, but, yes. You know, can yes. you make something available for Indeed. those that work nine to five? Yes, yeah. exactly. And so there are other aspects, other ways for people yeah. um, to meet me. But for those – and you know what? It's just, uh, again, like – Two days ago, um, I was in um, Crace. I think it was two days ago. That might not be right because my head is spinning. It's Friday, so I think it was earlier in the week. Were you in Hall yesterday? I was in Hall yesterday. And after today, I'm going up to Ngunnawal. So if anyone is listening now, after this program, I'm literally driving to Ngunnawal. And please come and have – we can later in the program, I'll double-check the name of the – or have a look on my website, the Facebook Facebook message for today. But just in Crace, so I – you know, check with the owners that it's, I mean, okay, I'm bringing business to them, of course, as well, for those who are coming to meet, but that it's okay for me to talk to people in the cafe. And in Christ, I spoke to three different people within, you know, 20 minutes. One was an older woman with her daughter. She was, the older woman was the childcare worker, and she was telling me about the challenges in the childcare industry, which I actually had known about by virtue of my earlier work with the 5050 Foundation, but it was really interesting to speak to her and their experience. And she'd lived in Canberra all her life. 
I then spoke to a fellow who was a builder and his partner. Um, she was still waiting for citizenship, but he, he was a, a, a citizen because I also asked them if they're voting and, you know, to be respectful if it's not of interest to them, although it's nice to meet people. And he was, I said to him, oh, the building industry must be doing very well. And he said, it looks like it's doing very well, but we're having such trouble because we can't get um, our products. I can't, you know, I'm waiting for for the timber. I'm waiting for this and that. And in the process of waiting, all the prices have gone up and I've already quoted, so I can't increase my prices, so I'm going to be losing money. Scotty's a tradie, if you didn't know. Okay. So he's yeah, yeah, first hand knows all about uh, well, this. Scotty, yeah. I'll talk to you more about this afterwards. You know, it's it's just, so. And then the third person I spoke to was displaced from the floods on the coast mm-hmm. her family farm her son and granddaughter insisted she come and stay with her sister who was living across the road from the cafe and she you know spoke so in that moment i had gender equity issues in childcare i had the um, ec- economy and the housing affordability and issues to do with housing and environment mm-hmm. just in those three snippets mm-hmm. of conversation and i think they really do reflect this sort of profound moment where there is so much that needs to be done and our political system hasn't enabled it to be done so that there we've got to act we've got to do something differently and i think that's what we're hearing from all of our listeners like we get a lot of questions come in to ask yes. our guests yes. and there's a lot of comments about what concerns they have yes and they're all fed up yep. with it being um, a yelling match between the, yes. the big two yes. and nothing changes. Exactly. You, you can always hope that something will change because, yes. you know, when they present their policies, they're always in competition with each other. Yes. And I think that's people have actually got to that point where, as you said, they've been impacted by so many things in the last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, for the first time ever, we saw climate refugees in our own country who yes. were Australians in the bushfires. Yes, right? indeed. And now we're seeing that from the floods. Yeah. So there's people before who might have been able to look past some of those issues yes. at an election and now they can't because it's personally impacted exactly them. so this yes. is where i believe and i think you've mentioned this too on some of your social media and yes. your interviews how important it is to have independence yes running yes who can make a difference on the crossbench yes so let's yeah. yes that and that point about the crossbench is really important so you know we, we've most of the attention in the campaign so far has been in the lower house mm-hmm. and that's understandable on one level because the government of the day is formed in the lower house so i'm not going to be part of a, a government and some of those lower house independents might be needed mm-hmm. to form a government so that's important But for our basic democracy, they can introduce legislation. But if the Senate doesn't pass that legislation, then nothing is going to happen. And again, for some, you know, one-on-one democracy here, our Senate, because it's a system of proportional representation, generally does not enable the party in government to have a majority. And in fact, since 1975, only two governments have ever had a majority. Malcolm Fraser, after the dismissal, managed to get a majority in the lower house and the upper house. And John Howard in 2000 and, um, in the in the early 2000s had that. And in fact, that led to the backlash against the work, cho- you know, they rushed through because they could, the work choices legislation and the huge backlash. So, it's not normal for the part, the lower house a government to have a majority and we know for certain they're not going to in this election because it's a half-Senate election, um, which is also the way the Senate works except for the ACT, which we'll come back to. So we know who's staying on there, which includes one of the One Nation um, representatives and Pauline Hanson is likely to be re- re-elected. So it means people like me on the crossbench are going to be key because 
To pass any government legislation, they're going to need the votes on the crossbench. And this is where I want Canberrans to think, you know, seriously about the power of their vote in choosing who that person will be, because it's quite a profound responsibility. And as I just sort of intimated, with the ACT and the Northern Territory, because we're new players in um, of, of Senate representation, we only started in 1975, they also made it that we don't have six-year terms. We only have three-year terms. So three years is not a lot of time. And what I'm saying to Canberrans is that really my last 25 years of work have placed me perfectly to be on the ground running right from day one with all of the things that are important but with the capacity to act. And then, coming back to your point, Zena, part of my conditions in the sense of the ways in which my vote will be um, relevant is that I'm, I really am going to be saying each piece of legislation needs to be engaged with in a dignified, respectful, expert policy-influenced community consequences way. And what I mean by that is... With that vote, I could actually change the way we ne- we negotiate mm-hmm. to actually say this is not about bartering and saying if you give me this, I'll give you that, but actually saying everyone in the Senate who has a vote has to do this in the way we expect, not what we see in terms of that bullying, well, personalised, the, the culture, the toxic culture. Yeah. So I, I just feel very excited that there might be this moment where the influence is not only on the policies but on the culture in Parliament. And we can come back to the Kate Jenkins report too because mm-hmm. that was very significant for me and I was quite involved in advocating for that as well. Yeah. So what um, what area of law are you in? Yes. Oh, that's a very fair question. So since 1994, I've been teaching what we call the law about government. So that's constitutional law. So that's the foundation to a whole political system administrative law, which is things like freedom of information, the tribunals, which I've always said to my students is human rights law in action because we don't have a Bill of Rights in our constitution. So if you want to challenge government decisions that are unlawful or go against people's rights, you have to use the administrative law system. And so that's what I've been teaching. And not only that, I've kept my practising certificate. So I actually practised as a lawyer for two and a half years when I finished law school. And that practice was also about standing up for refugees and for individuals affected by government decisions. So in both in my teaching and in my advocacy, I've been working in the law that governs government. And then the other area, the two other areas, yep. um, I have written about citizenship in Australia. So I have the major book on Australian citizenship law that's sort of the Bible for the government. I've advised both sides of government for the courts when they analyse decisions and that is all for me has always been about inclusion over exclusion, membership and citizenship, but the law sadly errs on the side of exclusion. And so I've used my skills to try and challenge those decisions and I can say proudly on many occasions successfully to um, override government decisions where they've excluded people who shouldn't have been excluded. And then the third area, linking back to my constitutional work, is about gender and constitutional Mm -hmm. law, about the place of women in representative democracy. And, in fact, Mm -hmm. the very first constitutional law piece I wrote in 1995, so I'm really dating myself here, (laughs) before my 23-year-old was born, um, was about our representative democracy and gender. Mm -hmm. 
should we, if we're a truly representative democracy, have equal numbers of women in parliament? And there are arguments to say, yes, that a constitutional condition could be. Now, you might say to me, so why have I waited over 20-something years to put my hand up? And it is actually about the balancing of work and family. I, you know, have been advocating all of, of more women in parliament and have been acting to assist, you know, broadly women to get into parliament. But I never really thought about it directly until now for myself because with a growing family I knew it would be a huge sacrifice and I felt I could still make public contributions without sacrificing family as an academic and as a lawyer but also coming back to where we started the party political system was so unattractive to me that it was not something that I thought of and then the third reason was I felt well, maybe I can do more because I can advise both sides of government and I can critique so both sides of government. And that comes back to that independent voice, really trying to influence public policy. And as where we're coming back to where we started from, I've come to the point where I realise that that is all well and good and I feel like I've done some good things. But unless the people in Parliament are really listening and prepared to act on those things, it won't happen. And the timing for me is my kids are now adults, so I'm not sacrificing them. And indeed, they're both of them, my 23-year-old daughter and my 21-year-old son, are active in the campaign. Um, so that's, you know, not um, – I hope they'll say it's not sacrificing them in the sense of the, that's a really great learning experience for them and all the other hundreds of volunteers. But also the timing of the issues is so key. We've got to move forward. So, And what we've just said, there is actually a moment that we could do something in the Senate, so why not have a go? Yeah. Yeah. And if our listeners are really keen to know more about what you've just discussed about that period of your career, yes. there was a fabulous Q&A episode with Hamish McDonald. Yes, he wanted yes. to have you back for a whole He show. said at the end, yeah. I think we need Kim Rubenstein back from her own, for a one-on-one, which yeah. was very lovely. Yeah. Um, yes, look, I really have felt that's the other part of being an academic and an independent, that you can make those contributions in the media. It is remarkable, uh, Zena and Scotty, in terms of, you know, my very first Q&A appearance, which was back in 2016 when the whole dual citizenship fiago happened. And so the, all my work on citizenship was really relevant. And that one hour of, you know, uh, media had such a huge response, you know, people who haven't seen for years, you know, former students, my current students. And it sort of, it did make me think through how, you know, my 20 odd years of scholarship had never got that same. I mean, it has in the sense of influencing decisions and helping other people. I mean, it has a real grounded influence on a daily basis, which is very affirming. But there's something about media that changes that in terms of public recognition of your work. And that's sort of interesting. Well, it's you know. visibility, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, And it brings to light all that other work. <clears throat> and hopefully this opportunity in Parliament will not only bring to light all that other work, but give it another outlet that has a really lasting effect on the nation. Mm. Yeah. Now, a couple of things. I've sure. been waiting for a constitutional lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> now, is it true that yes. the Governor-General needs to approve every piece Ad- of legislation that yes. comes through the Parliament? Yes, it is. And so this becomes relevant to a discussion about the Republic. But our mm-hmm. system is a mix of the English system of uh, responsible government or the Westminster system, and it's also a mix of the American system, um, the Washington. So often it's referred to as a Washminster system, <laughs> the mix of the two. And part of the English influence is that the Crown, the Queen, as head of state, has to sign off on every piece of legislation. Now, the interesting thing about that in the move to a republic is that there are what are called conventions or practices that are seen as um, constitutionally expected. Now, that 
includes that the Governor-General, who's our current Head of State, um, acts on the advice of the government of the day so that it becomes a formal rubber stamp of um, the legislation. But theoretically, and if we go back to 1975 when the Governor-General dismissed the Prime Minister, there is the practical reality that a Head of State could assert power and our courts generally don't look at those sorts of political decisions because they're not grounded in anything written in the Constitution. So that becomes relevant for a discussion to a move to the Republic in terms of what powers you would need to be clear about if you create a head of state under a Republic as opposed to the Crown. Do we reaffirm, which I think we do, and I can, we can come back to this because I've been on the Constitutional Advisory Committee for the Australian Republican Movement, I think you would have to be very clear about the curtailed nature of that head of state's power. Mm. So the other one was yes. that uh, we don't actually have any rights, do yes. we? Yes. <laughs> so when the framers of the Constitution, and this is I, I, there's so many great stories to tell you here, but there were no women framing the Constitution, but there was one woman in South Australia who did try to be a framer because they had the vote in, in South Australia in the 1890s. So it was a people's convention where they came together to draft the constitution, which is also seems democratic, except that she didn't get elected and no Indigenous people were elected. So it was um, a lot of um, white and, again, landed gentry, you know, um, upper-class people who drafted our constitution. And they all believed at the time, and this is quite a common... English common law, sort of judge-made law concept that it is for the courts to protect rights, not for constitutions. Now, we're, so that's why we don't have any written... Well, we have limited rights in our constitution, but it's mainly about our federal system, the fact that we created a federal government and state governments. There are protections... There, well, the court has interpreted from the constitution a right to vote, but only linked to... Uh, oh, sorry, a, a, there's a, um, a concept of a right to vote because it provides for electors and individuals to elect their representatives and the court has interpreted that in a positive way. And there's um, there's been interpreted a right to freedom of political discussion and this is where this idea of that I tried to develop of having a, an expectation that women be equally represented. The court said if the constitution provides for representative democracy, which it clearly does for allowing in two sections that we vote for our uh, representatives, then surely you have to be able to know who to vote for and therefore freedom of discussion around politics is essential. Not freedom of speech broadly, but freedom of speech. So we've the court has developed, but that's not explicit in our constitution. And the key thing for me, Scotty, over the last few years that I've been out there um, talking a lot on um, and trying to bring to the public's attention is the limited, in fact, absence of protection for citizenship rights. And the perfect example was when 30,000 Australians were stranded outside of Australia. Or Julian Assange. Or Julian Assange. You know, all of these. And earlier, in the 1950s, there was a fellow called Wilfred Burchard, who was a communist, who travelled the world and they cancelled his passport and he basically was exiled for most of his life. He was stateless. Stateless, yeah. There, um, I can't remember now the country that gave him refuge, but in essence... This, this, is, this is something that's happened that to me seems totally inconsistent with a conception of 
membership of a nation state if the nation ca- state can well, say you're not allowed that's in. That's the social contract, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. indeed, that's mm-hmm. right. The rights and responsibilities that come from membership. And in fact, there's another story because when we actually set up the constitution, there was no Australian citizenship. We were all British subjects and... It wasn't until 1949 that the actual term Australian citizen came into force and we then became both British subjects and Australian citizens. So so I've always said we've had this sort of duality. Dual citizenship is actually not such a foreign concept for us because we were both British subjects and Australian citizens. Um, And interestingly, some of those British subjects who are not Australian citizens are still on the electoral roll and can vote at this coming election even though they're not citizens. Yet there are some Australian citizens who, by virtue of having lived overseas for a period of time, are excluded from voting. So there are all these inconsistencies which come from the absence of it being in the Constitution. So that's something I've been quite passionate about for a long time. And, in fact, for those stranded Australians, I wrote what was known as a memorandum for the international court action that Jeffrey Robinson um, Jeffrey Robertson brought on behalf of some of those stranded Australians, which no longer is alive because, of course, the borders have opened. But they... What we did um, and what they did in in particular was use the international law frameworks because Australia is actually a signatory to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and that states explicitly that a person should not be precluded from entering their own country. Interesting, it uses it was own a country, country of birth. Well, so this is it. The, our own country becomes okay. a really no, an, another whole question in and of itself. But there's no question that if you're a citizen, that is a very clear mm-hmm. connection. But there are other more grey cases in it where someone wasn't born in Australia, but effectively, as a baby, came mm-hmm. and spent their whole life in Australia didn't formally get citizenship because of hiccups along the way and that person is now living in Sweden removed from Australia because he wasn't a formal Australian citizen and even though uh, he was successful in this forum that I was talking about in the international arena Australia refused to follow that decision Um, and similarly for this case that I was involved with it didn't the the government was proposed put in arguments against the the case. But my um, memorandum was essentially saying that when um, someone in Australia is put in this position, it would take years for the case to go through to the courts. And so they're effectively prevented from um, getting an immediate decision here, which is why they had to go immediately to the international court. Because normally the international arenas don't look at things until your local jurisdiction has made a decision. But it was an expression of my sort of a- a- um, desire to use my skills to assist in really prosecuting how appropriate is it for a government to keep out its citizens. And to build into that, you know, of course COVID was really a big, it was a key health concern. So I'm not saying it should have just opened the the borders for us all to get COVID. But the Commonwealth also has power over quarantine. And so it could have, and chose not to, but it could have set up quarantine stations with its own powers. It didn't have to rely on the states. All around the country would have invested in construction. It would have helped service workers to move and provide their services. Um, and we could have balanced the needs of Australians travelling into the country as well as our health needs by actually having purpose-built quarantine stations rather than the 
the terrible results we saw in some of the hotels and oh, so yeah, forth. Yeah. yeah so. I just saw, you know, I know you're very um, active with RAC. The, yes, the, the refugee, refugee action campaign. campaign yes, and yes. I just noticed that they've just released the um, Melbourne Park Hotel yeah. refugees. They've been there for almost 10 years, yeah. like nine and a half years, I believe. Oh, it's, it, yeah. it's so a mo- I know this is all leading up to an election. It's all very strategized. But, but, but doesn't know, that, yes. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. It think. is. That's our, that's our approach to dealing with this But that they thing? become political pawns. Yeah. Because if mm. they could do it now, why couldn't have they done it nine mm. years ago? Yeah. Because they felt there was some political end in that. Mm. And these are human beings' lives. Mm. There's a book that I've read that I'd really encourage everyone listening called Escape from Manus <clears throat> by Javed Elom. Mm. He he was a Rohingya um, refugee. Even the story of him getting out and uh, to Australia is harrowing. Mm. Then he got put on Manus. He escaped from Manus Island, which is remarkable. But what he chronicles and what I'm sure these people who are through, if they have the wherewithal to write down the awfulness of what they've been through, shares with us, is just, it is a moral stain on our liberal democracy that that our government in our name kept people indefinitely in detention and dehumanised them. It's, yeah. So this Sunday is Palm Sally, a uh, Palm... Sunday rally. There's a mix of talking too much, and um, uh, encourage people to come to Garima Place, Petrie Plaza, to be involved in that rally. You know, this they this should not. And this is another example where me on the crossbench, having a role on the crossbench, because part of the problem is that it's been bipartisan, both Labor and the Liberals are responsible for the detention policies. So. We have a moment again with a crossbench where I could actually move to um, re-regulate uh, refugee law in a way. Of course, it needs to be regulated, but you can invest not in detention but in processing time so that the decisions are made you know, quickly and that people who are in need are looked after in that processing time and not not dehumanised. Well, I know that's one of your policy priorities <clears throat> is working with the situation with refugees, Australia's yes. approach to refugees. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, the other thing that we know has happened recently, which didn't get a lot of media coverage, was the Belawea family yes. was returned to Belawea. They still haven't been given status, but yes. they've been returned from Perth to yes. Belawea. Yes, yes. And um, all of this very quiet because I think they, they took a look at the um, public opinion and the yes. electorate and they yes. said, we're going to lose if we yes. don't do this. Or the Djokovic decision. Yeah. You know, I mean, why did it take so long for the minister to revisit that decision? I don't know the answer to that. But because we've lost so much faith and trust in our government, it's hard not to think that they were doing their polling to see mm. what way it would go. And again, that's, I think that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. If I might be honest about that. Well, yeah. you know, even if it wasn't, the fact that we've got to the point where that is our perception yeah. reflects our distrust in the system and all the rorting in terms of the expenditure in those marginal seats. Mm-hmm. Or it, and I'm not even going to say all, but and last in the last two weeks, the things that I teach about mm-hmm. freedom of information and the tribunal system, with freedom of information over the last. Um, you know, 10 years or so, processing times have just blown out, so the waiting time. The numbers of, at the extent of what's called redacted material, when they black out material, Mm -hmm. has increased. So those sorts of things are, are, you know, are problematic, but they didn't have a Freedom of Information Commissioner for seven years. So someone whose responsibility to keep a check over all that, they only announced that two weeks ago, a new person. Mm. So again, how can you not look at that and be cynical? And then to be even more cynical, last week or this week, the, the early part of this week, they've announced new appointments to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Now, as I said to you earlier, the tribunal is really important because it's meant and to be... this was like the 500 million... 
uh, the a paycheck or whatever. Well, people, like. yes, people talk about how it's you know a very well paid job. Yeah. Um, that's a, I almost think that that's a separate discussion mm-hmm. to the question of who you're putting in to be your independent decision makers, because the whole idea is to provide for accountability for the government of the day by having a, someone who's not linked to the government making a decision on what is the correct or preferable decision. So something like citizenship, I go before the tribunal, a decision maker says, no, you don't fulfil these criteria on, say, good character grounds. Now, good character is not defined, so it's an interpretation. The minister generally, as I said, errs on the side of exclusion, but there might be other factors that could and should be taken into account. An independent tribunal has the capacity to do that. But if you stack the tribunal with people who are... Or jobs for the boys. Yes, then are they likely? I mean, even the perception, maybe they are... the US Supreme Court. Yes, constantly getting stacked with political appointments. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I might n- note, though, that today did you see announced that the first African-American woman has been appointed Is to the Katanji? Supreme Court? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that shows for diversity in decision-making. <laughs> but here, you know, again, a blatant decision because as soon as an election is called, they can't make those decisions. They have to go into caretaker <laughs> mode. So they've mounted that just before an election. So it's just it's quite insidious because those structural things that most people don't necessarily take into account, and not because they don't they can't, it's just that there's so much going on. But those decisions actually are more pernicious because they break down the structures and they lead you to the need for an independent commission against corruption because decision makers start taking their power for granted and they don't think about the fact that they're there to serve the people because they they're not being made to be transparent. They're not. Being then their decisions aren't being checked by an independent decision maker, so they start to then presume that it's only at election time, and then when it gets to election time, they put all these sweeteners to you know to capture the seven minutes of someone's you know average time spending thinking about an election, and that's not healthy for democracy. No, no. I mean that's really important those legacy things too. I mean, you look Whitlam, the guy who got sacked by the Queen. Yes. He left a, a huge legacy with all sorts of stuff that continue on even today. Yeah, you know? yeah. And um, yeah, John indeed. Howard was another one who yeah. left, in my opinion, a, a much more negative legacy. But yes, still except for the gun laws. Quite strategic in that yeah, way. Yeah, the gun yeah. laws were some. But yeah. that's right. If you can make changes to structures, like I can't tell you how many women I've heard who are now in their 70s, say, who would not have had an education if not for Whitlam's policies, you know, those sorts of things that so, become so profound. Or independent finances. They exactly. had to ha- co-signed by their husbands for a credit exactly. card. You know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Gender equity we can come back to even yeah, more because yeah. there are, you know, they did make significant changes and without those changes I don't think I would even be here in terms of having benefited from that sort of structural change but we've got so much more to do on that front on gender equity which mm-hmm. is also a motivation for me and that's something you talked about too is women's safety in parliament like yes. that, that toxic male culture in parliament and yeah. we've seen all of it come through the media in the last couple of years you know, yes exactly every situation with you know yes. Higgins and, yes. and every everyone that's accused yes indeed um, attacker, Inde- so, yeah. yeah look this is something that's really key for me and I think was a I don't know if I call the final straw, but a really significant reason for me running is that um, when those reports came out on Four Corners um, in November of 2020, I think it is now, um, I wrote an opinion piece with my co-director Trish Bergen from the 5050 Foundation 
when um, it was even um, before Brittany Higgins' allegations came out, just those first two Four Corners pieces which were showing about the culture being very unhealthy. And I'd known that the um, Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, had done a review of, of uh, the universities She and the office had done a review of the defence and she had just put out at the beginning of the year and had launched actually at one of our conferences the um, Safety at Work report, which, as we know, got languished, languished for a year, but she'd put that report out. So our opinion piece at the end of 2020 was saying, look, this is coming out about Parliament. Who better to review Parliament as a safe and equal workplace than Kate Jenkins? It was a December opinion piece. It was pretty quiet over January. And then in um, January, Grace Tame, as, as we know, was made Australian of the Year. And then, of course, the Brittany Higgins allegations came out. And so when that happened... Um, in my role as co-director of the 5050 Foundation, I reached out to all different women's groups around the country and to you know women who are active, and we wrote a letter to the Prime Minister, the Attorney General, and the Minister for Women, um, with effectively a one-pager synthesising the opinion piece and and having it signed on by 60 organisations and women, and then we attached the opinion piece as well, and we literally took it to Parliament House and hand delivered it to each of them. And, um, I, th- I mean, that was part of what then became the push and three weeks later Kate Jen- they announced that Kate Jenkins would do that report. Now, I'm not saying I'm the only reason for it, but it was part of a movement that really assisted and that report set the standards is really important. And, again, we need Parliament to act and we need people who are in there. And, and the, 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 the pre-election um, commitments are positive, but you really need to make sure, and that's another thing on the crossbench that I'm totally committed to, to ensuring that we um, make sure that her recommendations are adopted. But I also want to encourage people to think that we actually need more women in there because one of her most significant con- um, recommendations, which is common for each of the reports that she's done, is that if you have equal numbers of women as leaders in the organisation, you are less likely to have the bullying and harassment because it's about the culture of a place. Mm-hmm. So we need our parliament. It comes back to that first piece that I wrote back in 1995. We need equal numbers of women in parliament. Mm-hmm. So putting my hand up adds to that number. That new yeah, yeah. number. So a number of the things that you've, you've been mentioning, like the, the equal numbers of women yep. and uh, the constitutional stuff, yep. and it also touches on, on First Nations yeah. sort of yeah, governance. Is the, yeah. the, the government in northeast Syria, have you come across this? <laughs> tell me. No, no, tell me. What are yeah, you right. referring so, to? I want to come back to the Uluru Statement from the heart, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, tell me about the North Syria. Northeast Syria, the... Uh, the Kurdish peoples up there had yes. been having a very hard time. They'd had a, a long-running military campaign with Turkey. Yep. Um, but when the the Arab Spring yes, happened, correct. there was a, basically a, a military and power vacuum in the north of the country because yes. they were fighting. The government was fighting down south. Yeah. These guys were organised. They were prepared, and they said, "Right, eh, well, now we're going to have participatory democracy, and we're going to have." woman and a man as co-chairs of every neighbourhood standing meeting and uh, then they federated all their neighbourhoods which are sovereign which fits in with the yes um, the first nations Nations sort of organization Um, and then they federated to provide all their municipal services through cooperatives so they've 
done that up until when Trump allowed Turkey to bomb the hell out of them, um, and mm. then the Russians and, and yeah. uh, Damascus came up from the south. But they're still there. Yeah. They're still going. And Fantastic. It's a really interesting model, proven model of yep. how yeah. it could be done. Look, there are so many um, inspirational um, examples, but I do want to come back to the Uluru Statement from the Heart because that is another aspect. I mean, there's a lot, isn't it? There's a lot, but this is really key for me too. Um, I've written a piece um, and I've got a link. If people go to my policy priorities and I talk about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, there's also a link to a piece I wrote in the Bond Law Review where I really highlight how the process for writing that lyrical and very profound statement, which I share with my students as the first um, class on anything to do with power in government, you have to look at the Uluru Statement from the Heart in terms of where does power lie in this country. But what I was going to say is the process that they followed to actually write that involved going around to different communities and asking them what do they want from their constitution, from this Australian constitution. And here they've come together with um, uh, the statement. And the voice to parliament is such a profound step, I, I really believe. I'm really committed to assisting in moving forward. Now, that requires constitutional change as opposed to legislative change. However, I think that the work that has been done throughout the community in raising consciousness about this. Plus, I'm, um, I mentioned before I was on the advisory committee for the ARM. I'm also on the um, a, a group of constitutional scholars who have been working to support the um, the voice to parliament in the constitution. Everybody who's worked and taught in constitutional law, or the, you know, the large majority really affirm that there is nothing problematic constitutionally about this. It would be a very positive step. And so for constitutional change to occur, you need the parliament to put up the referendum and then you need a campaign that supports that referendum. Now, in 1967, when we got a change on uh, Indigenous Australians being included in the census, there was a 90-something percent support for, for that change. I think if... The parties came together and, again, on the crossbench in the Senate, that could be a role because we know I could have in the sense that both parties, we know have people who are supportive of, of the, um, the, the voice to parliament in the constitution. If you got those forces together and really led a positive campaign, I really believe that we would have that constitutional change. I think Australians have grown up enough with the right again, structures encouraging it for it to happen. And then that would be a win-win not only for recalibrating and uh, our constitutional underpinnings, but it then would also give us the opportunity to say, but there might be other things we can do too. After that's done, I think you have to concentrate on that one question alone. But after that's done, there are two other changes that I think, and this is not in necessarily in one parliament, but further down the track for us as a nation to think about, um, and that is also our multicultural society. And we talked about the dual citizenship before. That's another area that could be tweaked in a way that protect against, you know, uh, undermining Australia, but also enabling more uh, uh, dual citizens who um, uh, are totally loyal to and want to support Australia but don't necessarily want to have to give up that other citizenship because of its emotional 
uh, content. Anyway, there are lots of things there mm. and the Republic. So there are three things. But I think for this, for, for people thinking about the next election, having someone who can really push for the Uluru Statement from the heart is really is um, an exciting opportunity. Yeah. So one of our regular guests is um, Gillar, Michael Anderson. So right. he's a, a ULEI yes. elder yes. and he's quite learned in the law as well. And he's yeah. been one of the He's the last remaining member of those three guys who started the 10 embassy many years ah, ago. Yeah. Um, and ever since then, he's been trying to seek out ways of actually getting sovereignty back. Yeah. His opinion with the statement from the heart is yes. that that question that they asked, how do you want to be included in the Constitution, was the wrong, wrong question. question. Yeah. And he is another one of these people who's yes. going around all the different tribes and internationally and yes. just gathering information yes. and, and talking. And his opinion is that it's very likely that becoming included in the Constitution, if you participate in that, it's yes. actually going to cede your sovereignty in some way because sovereignty yeah. has never been ceded by yes, the, yes. the many nations. Look, this is an ongoing sort of tension, I mm. think, um, and a not unfair one to, to raise, but I... I my own sense is that um, if you start with that, it's not the end of it. So it's not that's it and that's the end of the story, but in fact that you move forward on those other things. And if you look in Victoria, for instance, in terms of treaty and the reconciliation body that they've set up, that there are ways of doing them. And if we get hung up on the order, we might miss out on you know on the lot and this is the really fine line between balancing ideals and practical outcomes there there is no magic bullet in terms of knowing which way is the best way forward but i think that the work that's been done and i know megan davis and uh, auntie pat turner who were running those sessions around the country um they're you know they each of them are obviously motivated by very positive um, you know, um, ideals, um, and if you c and and Megan, of course, is a constitutional scholar as well, Professor Megan Davis, um, and so yes, I think that they're not. I would say they're not mutually exclusive, and given we've got to the point where this is a possibility, uh, why not run with it? But I appreciate that not you know, and that's the nature of any community, whether it be um, you know any community within the nation is not going to be homogenous. And um, and so too should we not expect that from First Nations, um, and that discussion in and of itself is healthy, um, and then you make decisions moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nah, I don't know. I'd be more confident if there were a lot more independence in them. Yeah, yeah indeed. Speaking that, of that, that, they wouldn't get screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Well, that's right. That and and that does add to the voice of diversity, mm -hmm. not to mention yeah other aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of that, because one of your policy priorities is inclusion over exclusion. Yes, right? indeed. But you've also been very active in campaigning and you've already written the legislation for it. Yes. For extra Senate seats yes. for the ACT. Yes. So we yes. can get can some I... more equal representation yes. going on yes. here. So standing which would address up... a lot of what we just exactly, talked about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So standing up for Canberra is obviously really key mm -hmm. in the sense that I will be the um, a, an independent representing the ACT. So... Um, that is, you know, first and foremost fundamental. How do we best represent the needs of Canberrans? Well, the reality is that we have been disadvantaged for so long because we've only had two senators and that 
is not only a population thing because we've doubled in size and during the same time since 1975, each of the states have grown by two. So they've because their um, growth in population led to an increase in senators, it's not unfair to be saying that we should also have an extra two. But the other part of the equation is by only having ever had two, it has meant that the parties have had a stranglehold over, over um, the territory. And because the representatives for the ACT have to get everything that is in the needs of Canberra through their parties and because the parties have taken Canberra a bit for granted, we haven't really been properly looked after. So having, and we are at this moment where an independent could be elected. We know from the polling that it is definitely possible at this election. Well, you're, you're all ahead of Zed, I believe, so that's a well, good thing. Well, one of the, I think the, the issue is for people who might have voted for the Liberal Party in the past mm. to realise that there is a real alternative and a credible alternative and something that can actually better reflect. And nothing's changed. You know, yes. they've voted for yes. their preferred candidate yes. for hopefully to get things happening and nothing happened and nothing changed. Yes. You got the same of the same, yes. which wasn't working. Yeah, so look, I think we have to always be careful about the way we represent this in the sense of what are the positives that come from this rather than what we're getting out, what, what what's being removed. So I'm saying to Canberrans, look, this is the first time you've got someone, you know, or now two people above the, uh, the line who can directly represent represent you and this move of mine is to not only show that there are ways of doing it but I'm ready to roll from day one so in essence it's a reminder that we only have three years unlike the other states we actually start as soon as parliament um, returns because the senators from each of the states have to wait to the first mm-hmm. of July mm-hmm. so some of those senators mm-hmm. so if I get in um, and am sitting before the first of July then someone like Pauline Hansen is still there mm-hmm. until the first of July she may be re-elected but but in essence, the old senators are there until the 1st of July with the new ACT and Northern Territory senators. So it's really a reminder to Canberrans to say, look, I'm ready to roll. I mean, I've had I've had the Odgers Senate practice in my office as a constitutional law teacher. Not that it's as well-worn as my constitution, but I'm hoping by the end of the three years it will be really well-worn. But there's this opportunity for an independent with the capacity to hit the ground running on all the issues that are key, plus also to be there to keep coming back, to continue having the chise, to continue to have the Zoom meetings, to continue to connect with Canberrans so that, you know, we are properly represented. And then the other aspect of having four senators coming back to all the issues we've talking we've spoken about is that you've got that extra voice in our parliament for Canberrans to push for the things that are coming through like climate change i mean we haven't even got to climate change yet and that's a really key issue for me so if we have those extra senators we can be really pushing and um on ways in which we can move forward on climate change um, we can be pushing for all the issues to do with housing affordability that is, you know, not only a Canberran issue, but but um, a Canberrans have a particular experience that could be shared with that. You know, even looking at the last budget, 0.3% of infrastructure funding for Canberra. Now, that is not proportionate to the needs of, of Canberrans. If you had four senators who are really acting fully for Canberra, they'd have, our needs would have to be taken into account. And then the last point, which is a very profound point for Canberra, is federal government's capacity mm-hmm. to override ACT legislation and the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill is an example of that. Now, no matter what one feels about Voluntary Assisted Dying, that should be a personal yeah. choice. And we should never... A, a representative of Canberra, of the ACT, should never 
support a federal government overriding ACT democratic legislation. Mm-hmm. And having four senators means that we've got extra heft mm-hmm. in resisting that and possibly even seeking to override mm-hmm. that override, to repeal that override bill. So there are just so many elements where it will be such a win-win um, and, you know, it's healthy for a democracy to have representation according to the growth as well as... Well, imagine to, getting four independents well, to share values. Yeah, that would be incredible. Yeah, well, but even if it wasn't four independents, Zena, even if you had a Labor and a Liberal and a couple of independents or a smaller party, in it, it would enable that diversity of voice to be properly heard in Parliament, not to be on the outside seeking to um, influence them, but to actually be in there, in the room, in the chamber... Um, making the case and actually having a vote that could be really significant that they'll need on the crossbench. That is wonderful. Mm. Because uh, one of your um, quotes, if I might read it out yeah, here, sure. um, you know, was about the integrity in politics, yes. politics decaying. So you said integrity in politics is decaying. The planet is dying. Women are unsafe in the workplace. So many people are homeless. The discussion about who can build a bigger stadium is emblematic of the style of politics mm. we're trying to fix. Yes, yes. This is me yeah. trying to be as careful as possible yes. in not attacking others because I don't want to... No, but we, but we all, we all have issues. our goals and our visions for our campaigns, yes, right? And indeed. they're all valid. Yes, But yes. just where our priorities lie. Right? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, you know... Um, both David and I, David Pocock and I sat down with the business chamber last week and there is no question that we want to stimulate and uh, anyone representing Canberra. I mean, I grew up, my my grandfathers were both small businessmen in the sense that my, my father's father was a fruiter actually, you know, got up at the crack of dawn or before the crack of dawn to go to the markets in Melbourne and my, my dad remembers going to the Camberwell market and helping him and my uh, mum's father was a small Importer. He brought in fabrics from overseas, Kangog caps, and I used to, as a school kid, go in and help in that. So I have the lived experience, and I am actually the first in my family to go to university. So that sort of commitment to stimulating the economy and enabling your children to have great educations is something that is also really part of my own my own upbringing. So we need to think. But, but I th- what, I, what I was trying to say in that is that when we think about that, we have to think about that holistically of, to where it fits with all the other needs in a community and do the balancing rather than saying, I'm going to put all this money into a new stadium or to a new convention centre. That could be part of the mix. But to make a, a commitment to that before you're even in parliament, I think as an independent we don't have to be fixed to that style of politics. That's not really going to help us as a community long term. A particular part of the community may be helped. There might, there might be ways of that being factored in together with one uh, other issues. But um, my commitment really is to say we need an open process for um, infrastructure. We need consultation. I mean, the numbers of, of on-the-ground sporting group, groups in Canberra, I also you know, met um, this week with, um, with some of the heads of the different sporting groups, cricket, so um, tennis. So you support women in sport as exactly, well? Exactly, yeah. women in sport, but also just you know, young school kids who are having to play until midnight because they don't have enough courts in Canberra to have all their games because it's so popular, which is so healthy. I mean, sport is such a healthy part of society. It can play into so many issues of social cohesion, you know, in terms of... um, Well, David Pocock would tell you that from his background. Well, that's right, right, exactly. It it is, it is. And so you need to be able to have that capacity to build that in 
but not have that as your sole focus, but show how it relates to all the other issues that are so key. And if we can do that in Parliament, if we can better calibrate those um, different needs and bring um, the outcome that benefits everybody, not just one group because that's going to get their vote the next time, but showing that basically everybody's vote counts and that you can trust that I, as your representative, will be engaging with everybody to then calibrate how we can do the best by everybody. I think that's really key and that's about changing the way we do politics and I'm, I'm just so passionate about that being the way we move forward and the excitement that, that I might actually have a role to play in doing that. Right. Well, we're starting to run out of time. Oh, yes. we better this go, has been easy. Yes. To, to better go to climate. Yes, yes, let's do that, yeah. Okay, so do you want to ask me a specific question or I can tell you a little bit oh, more? Oh, why don't you just start? <laughs> <reading>? <laughs> I'll let you use the time to your best advantage, thank Kim. Thank you, thank yeah. you. So, look, I mean, in the 1980s when I was a university mm-hmm. student, I remember, you know, the Labor government, Bob Hawke at that time, talking about climate change. I mean, it is just so um, mind-blowing on one level that we're, here we are 40 years later talking about the same issues. And, to, and, and I have been, you know, very involved myself. There was a petition, uh, sort of linking back to women's history, in the 1890s, women wrote a petition to Parliament to get a, the vote because, of course, as I said to you earlier, only women in South Australia. At the turn of the century, there was this massive, um, what was called a monster petition developed. And um, in 2012, I think it was, I was involved with this campaign to have a monster petition on climate, just as the women had been pushing uh, for their vote, so too for, as, human, as human beings, as women, we needed to make sure Parliament acted. And so for a very long period with the Victorian Women's Trust, I was based here in Canberra but I was their ambassador um, in, the, in the capital, um, we gathered um, signatures for this monster petition on climate and it was, you know, there was a, a campaign. I mean, and that's already 10 years ago. This is, this is just something that I'm extremely passionate about. But in addition... What I think is key for people to realise is that things are happening in the states and territories and in the business community. So there are good news stories out there, but our federal government has been the hurdle. Our federal government has been the block on this. So knowing how to move the federal government is going to be key for moving forward on climate change. And that is something that is going to be a first order item as well for me. And um, I'll just say to everyone, stay tuned for next week where the fullness of this comes out. But I have developed um, a policy which could be um, a game changer in terms of how we how Parliament moves forward on climate action because I really believe that there are so many sectors now in our community, I mean, it's just undeniable that they are acting and the business community needs security in its investment in renewables. We need security for those people whose industries are going to be phased out and security in them knowing that we, as a, as a society, are going to look after them, going to provide for them in that transition and their children. So it's those commitments to each sector of the community that is going to be affected that is paramount. And what better place than your federal parliament, which is meant to be representing mm-hmm. everyone, to actually be responsible for doing that? And I just think that as on the crossbench, um, there is a real opportunity for that to occur. So, you know, I'm essentially saying to everybody, we have to act, but the thing that's been blocking us is the party system and our federal parliament, and I'm really going to move forward on ensuring that that um, occurs. Um, And 
If that occurs, then we will be looking at the re reduction of emissions here locally, which, um, again, um, you know, the, the government of the day's targets are not strong enough. I think Labor can be stretched even further. Um, but it's the process of getting to that decision that is key. So in addition to pushing for better targets, I'm actually pushing for a way that we can actually get to how we move there. So that's the our own domestic economy. Then, of course, there's the export um, uh, framework that we have to consider and talking about how we phase out those industries in a way that is socially responsible. Um, and, um, and that is, you know, really um, key. And then... The third part is that social inclusion mechanism. How do we time it in a way that we look after people's needs, that we look after the electricity grid, that we look after and do it in a secure way that um, benefits everybody? So, yes, stay tuned for a fuller version of that. But in essence, it is about those three areas being taken seriously by our federal parliament and a mechanism which has really been beyond us for the last 40 years because of our party political system. You know, we've had moments of hope, but then party politics got in the way and we just can't let that continue to happen. So, yes, it's it's yeah. absolutely key. It's number one, you know, when I was um, both integrity and climate were the two things that came up very strongly in our Zoom meetings Um Homeless, um, home, uh, cost, homelessness, cost of housing and rent and, ten, and rent, rental prices were other key issues that came out. So, I, look, I'm really ready to move on all of those things, but I think the structures need to be in place and I'm keen to use that um, skill set that I've been blessed with to be able to hopefully move with yeah, all of that. Well, talking about structures being in place. Yes. Um, we, we've got locked in already a lot more heating of the earth with climate. Yeah. And... We've seen massive bushfires and now the massive floods and yes. it's only going to get worse. worse. That's How do you reckon we can organise ourselves in order to be resilient to these things in the future? That's a really good question because it's resilient as a country in terms of what I'm going to announce next week about a way forward to create that resilience in decision making. But it's also, as I think you're alluding to, Scott, is the... Um, as human beings, how we manage stress. Is, is that what you were getting at as well? No, I'm oh, okay. thinking more about the actual structure of society oh, and yeah. the grid and our yes, food supply yes, and exactly, the, meeting yes. our basic needs. Yeah, so indeed. the infrastructure. The infrastructure for... Well, yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. the imaginary infrastructure mm -hmm. and governance that goes with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I really think um, there are um, there are already organisations. Um, there's a climate roundtable that has a mix of industry and the fossil um, industries as well as, and, and the fuel, you know, uh, industries as well as the conservation um, groups as well as other stakeholders um, that has been trying to work collaboratively. So that gives us some inspiration about ways of moving forward. We've got experts here, right here at ANU, you know, and, and here in Canberra who have the material to assist us. We've got, you know, real investors who are wanting to invest in renewables, but they need the certainty and security from a governmental structure for that to happen. So what I'd say to you is actually there's more hope than, than or we there is the potential to be more hopeful if we calibrate all that positive um, action that is happening out there into our federal parliament. Um, so I think that there are structures out there that aren't being utilised enough and if we have the right mix in parliament to bring those together, we'll actually be able to move forward. Mm -hmm. And um, the proposal that I'm, I'm going to be releasing next week has real 
steps that need to be taken in the 47th mm-hmm. Parliament, which is the next Parliament. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I don't want to be too much of a teaser, but stay tuned because okay. I'm really quite excited, no, excited about, the, about this. And um, given an election hasn't been called yet, I want to try and make sure that everybody gets to hear this as much as, as possible. They know about my double representation and I'm ready to roll on my, you know, I've already drafted that legislation. Mm-hmm. And then when this uh, climate policy stuff comes out, they'll mm-hmm. see that I really am... Um, quite um, um, thoughtful and ready to move on ways we can actually move forward on climate. And then the integrity part of my campaign also will come out, which is, you know, largely building on what we've talked about this morning, which is actually revaluing those structures that are there, like freedom of information, like our tribunals, like the ombudsman. If we strengthened those, we wouldn't need it. As you wouldn't even need to call on the independent commission against corruption. We need that to be set up because it needs to be the safety net and backstop. But you won't need it as much if you actually go back to the basics, which have been left behind by successive governments. And again, um, you know, going back to 1995, as a very young academic, I was a, a what was known as a consultant to the Australian Law Reform Commission review of freedom of information. In fact, when I held it up in one of my classes to students a few years ago and said I was on this and then I looked around and I said, how many of you were born when I was on this? And only a handful of mature age students put up their hand in a class of 400. So I am sort of dating myself here, but it really is about bringing all that that um, experience into parliament you know and and having an opportunity um which i don't think has existed until now for people to really take seriously that someone um with that skill set who's an independent and can stay committed to being an independent and is another woman in parliament can help on all of those different areas yeah and as we've had um unfortunately she couldn't join us today dr janara goring goring she yes. hopefully will be with us next week yes great. um she's also mentioned that the importance of not just having um women in parliament but also matriarchs yeah w- women, yes. women who have lived yes. the life experience yeah. who've raised children yes who've, indeed you know there's, yeah. there's a real uh, life wisdom that comes with I that i think there's yeah. that and and if you look at mm. the numbers i mean we don't have enough diversity in terms of um our migrant community mm. in the women who have put up our hands and that's something i've also addressed because i do think that mm. again women like me have benefited from those 1970s women but I think our role will be to mm. actually open it up yeah. for women um, from all different life experiences and that's a commitment that I'm, I'm, I truly have ideas about and, again, stay tuned maybe once I'm in Parliament about ways we can do that. Mm. Um, but that matriarch notion about being in our 50s, mm. most of the women who put up mm-hmm. our hands are women who now, you know, have, have had professional lives that have informed us and have families and our life experience as parents that have informed us. I actually think we need also, looking down the track, more younger men with young kids Mm. who will see the needs of balancing work and family in ways for our parliament. But all of that is, is about saying we have this rich resource and we've got the opportunity because these people, including me, we're putting up our hands you know, that the rest of the community should say, this is just an unbelievable opportunity. Let's go with it. Mm. So we've got a couple of listener questions. Yes. Are you okay oh, with fantastic. Yeah, yes. Just a um, quick one here. So um, a listener has wanted to know about your involvement with Climate 200. Yes, And that both sure. you and David yes. are part of Climate 200. David Pocock are part yes. of Climate 200. Yes. And they just wanted to know how that um, yes. connects with your campaign. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say I'm part of Climate 200. Climate 200 is a separate organisation. Mm-hmm. And just to remind everyone that I announced as an independent last August before Climate 200 even 
um, was on the on the public record of, of, of what it was doing. It certainly wasn't part of the framework of me putting up my hand to run. And this, as I've explained and I hope listeners have heard, this is something very core to my, my role as an active citizen. Um, but as soon as I knew that it was available and because, as we've just discussed, um, I'm very committed to climate action, um, I did inquire with them rather than as to their process for applying for funding. And I think for all listeners, it's really important to know that I've put myself on an even playing field by being above the line on the Senate ballot paper. But for people in Canberra to know about me, that involves advertising. Some people will have seen there are 10 hybrid cars driving around with my face <laughs> and logo on it. Um, people may have seen that in the Canberra Times, I've got a half page ad every Saturday. All that and the Canberra Weekly. And the Canberra Weekly and the City that. News. I've alternated those. Yeah. And that's really to say <coughs> to people, you need funds to do that. I'm not mm. I'm not funding this myself. I'm not, you know, I can afford to take some leave without pay to run when the election is called. But running a campaign costs money. And the key thing is when I ask people to support me financially to spread the mm-hmm. word, it's very clear that it's with no strings attached. Mm-hmm. It is about giving me the discretion to run my campaign. And so I think um, I didn't have any problem in taking seed, you know, in accepting seed funding. It's mm-hmm. only a s- small portion of what has been a remarkable community response. Mm-hmm. You know, people giving, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000. I've had, an, you know, an individual donation of 20,000. But every single donation adds up. And I need that to continue. So for people who have any spare uh, support, the donate on the website is real. Um, but to really reassure people that that is in order to for me to be able to run a campaign where I've got a chance of winning. Now, when I'm in Parliament, you know, looking at um, political donations law is important. There's no doubt about it. But in essence, um, in the framework that it is in now, um, you know, I'm more than happy to, to um, you know, to really affirm to the listener that it, it, there's no strings attached um, and that, you know, individual donations of any amount will be greatly accepted. Yeah. So unfortunately, we're not going to get to our second and third question. So I'm going to encourage our listeners who wrote those in to please maybe please. go and have some chai. Yes, with, come and meet Kim. me for a come chai. And chai exactly. and, and ask those questions in person I'd love to. Or, or to write in. Yes. So just to, um, before we wind up, just to uh, give our listeners an idea of where they can get in touch with you. Where's yes. the best so place to the, connect uh, with you? So on, on the web is probably the easiest. It's yeah. www kim for canberra with the numeral four in the middle dot com dot au and you can sign up to get you know weekly updates but you can also um write a message on there to get in contact with me that's the most straightforward way of doing so in um and um the facebook page the uh, twitter page instagram go and follow me um to see what that'll be where your next chai meeting will be that's right exactly today at um 11 o'clock i'm going to be driving from here to my next one in nanawal the exact name of the cafe um i'll see if i can pull up in two seconds while we're and also people if they want to host a yard sign they can also um, apply to do that through the link that you just provided so if they want to pop a yard sign yeah the yard yard. sign so it's not only just money but putting up a yard sign um Mm -hmm. signing up to volunteer to hand out 
how to um, to hand out my leaflets mm-hmm. at the booths. Mm-hmm. They're going to be over a hundred booths. Mm-hmm. But I'm heading to Blossom Cafe in oh, Nunnawal. Wonderful. Okay, folks. So, so that'll Blossom be lovely. Cafe at eleven. If yes. you'd like to go and meet with Kim, get in your cars now and start driving. Exactly. We'll we'll be <laughs> travelling up um, to uh, to Gungalan together. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to just say thank you so much for joining us this morning for braving the weather for thank braving you. the drama of parking in yes. Canberra with the Canberra Centre under construction. Oh, it's all happening all at once. Yes, uh, and also that you will be um, with your team at the Refugee Palm Sunday Rally. I am, yes. And I believe yeah, people are assembling in Garima Place, but yes. you're saying if they want to assemble with your team yes. to assemble at quarter past 12? Quarter it? past 12 at 8 Petrie Plaza, which was where our campaign headquarters is, mm-hmm. um, which is really exciting. So people can come down. That When you mentioned earlier, look on the website, but you can come down to 8 Petrie Plaza and meet volunteers down there too. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's Kim Rubenstein, who's independent candidate for the Senate in our upcoming federal election when they actually announce a date when it's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> thank you to both of you. It's been wonderful to speak with you and really stimulating questions. I really appreciate it. You're Thanks welcome, Kim. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.